So this morning, I'm so thankful we have Jacob here to teach us. Um, and if you don't know, Jacob is one of our elders, uh, married to Kiki, 21 years today. I'm going to open up with our disciplines today, and then um, Jacob will come teach us. And he's teaching on our, our Wellspring theme verse, which is on your notebooks, Proverbs 4.23. Um, and so before we get there, let me um, open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for another Wednesday when we can gather together and um, around your word to hear what you would have us learn and have us to know. And um, God, I know this semester already has been such a such an amazing time of growth for many of us, just um, learning about how to care for our hearts and our homes and how to care for each other. God, I pray that that continues, and I think particularly over the next several weeks, um, as we are not going to have Wellspring for a while, I pray that you would keep us faithful to be in your word, faithful to be um, doing our homework and preparing for when we're back in January. In your name, amen. All right, so um, what I wanted to talk about this morning was the month of December. We're in the month of December, and um, I know a lot of you do something extra special um, for yourself or for your family, for your kids, to um, focus on the birth of Jesus this month. Um, it's easy to get distracted by stuff, and um, a lot of you do an Advent calendar or an Advent book um, and I think it's interesting that the world has also embraced the idea of Advent calendars, although theirs look slightly different. Um, my daughter has one that's Trader Joe's, and it's like this tiny chocolate once a day. Um, she has two of them, so it's a lot of chocolate every day. Um, I don't know why she has two. So uh, I was also looking around, and Lego makes an Advent calendar. Um, Barbie, in case you wanted that. Hot Wheels. I even found one that was a fisherman's advent calendar, and it was called Merry Fishmas. <laughs> kind of ridiculous. Um, and then at Costco, I saw one, and it was an advent calendar for dogs. And yes, I tried to buy it, and my husband said no. So we do not have the advent calendar for dogs. Um, but the word advent simply means coming or arrival. So those calendars are really just a way to remind us of the coming or arrival of something. And for Lego and Barbie, <laughs> it's really the coming or arrival of Christmas Day, which probably means time off of work, presents, good food, maybe family and friends. Um, but for us, for believers, um, Advent is reminding us of the coming of something far more important, far entirely different. Um, we're remembering the coming of our Savior as a baby, born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. Um, in my home, we've never celebrated Christmas with Santa. We always taught our kids that he was make-believe. Um, Christmas is about Jesus. Um, but in spite of our best efforts, one of my children really believed in Santa. <laughs> I really don't know why. And I remember one Christmas morning, she was about six. And she came running down the stairs, and she's like, did Santa come? And my poor husband was like, no, but Jesus did. <laughs> so, you know, <clears throat> Advent calendars are helpful <laughs> sometimes to, to, to train our thinking or remember why we celebrate Christmas. So let's talk about our disciplines. Um, discipline one, I'm not going to read them. I'm just kind of rephrasing them. 
Discipline one is that we, hopefully faithful women of God, shepherd our hearts toward God, even in the month of December, which I know can be a challenge. Uh, We shepherd our hearts with the word of God and particularly the gospel. And around this time of the year, the gospel reminding us that Jesus came to earth as a baby to die, live a perfect life, then be sacrificed for our sin. Um, And we shepherd our hearts with that truth when we're reading God's word. We shepherd our hearts with that truth when we're shopping and wrapping Christmas presents and when we're with maybe difficult family members, uh, when we're tired, we're hungry, we're feeling a little overwhelmed, we have sick kids, uh, we're fighting some temptation, whatever it may be, in all those situations we are reminding ourselves of what Christ has done to pay for our sins. And um, we use that truth to bring our hearts to a willing submission under the authority of that truth, and that has implications on our lives. So um, you don't have to turn here, but uh, it's probably very familiar. Philippians 2, 3 through 6. I'm just going to read it to you. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So, as we remember Christ, the God from all eternity, who humbled himself by becoming a helpless child in the likeness of humans, we can rejoice in Jesus' humility and in his self-emptying love of sinners, and his identification with sinners like us. Um, But that has implications for our lives. So our hearts must be shepherded to this truth and then be shepherded to obey this truth. So what does it look like for you this Christmas season to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus? What does it look like when family members are deciding on what to do for the afternoon and Nobody wants to do what you want to do. And what does it look like to not look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others? What does it look like when my opinion isn't valued or taken into consideration like I think it should be? And uh, as we remember Jesus' first advent, his coming as a baby, we remember not only his coming, but we remember his death on the cross. And we shepherd our hearts with, that truth and with obedience to that truth. So another really familiar verse for you, you don't have to turn to Hebrews 12, uh, starting in verse 1, it says, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary, fainting in heart. So we shepherd our hearts to the truth of Jesus patiently enduring the cross. We fix our eyes on that truth, and we fix our eyes on Jesus. But why do we do that? 
Well, Hebrews 12 just told us. It's so that we can run with endurance. It's so that we can not grow weary in doing good or faint in heart in laying aside sin because Jesus patiently endured shame and slander and ridicule and mistreatment. So can we. So shepherding our hearts with this truth of the gospel is rejoicing in that truth, reminding ourselves of that truth, and then speaking to our hearts and instructing our hearts in obedience so that it transforms our lives. Discipline two is that we're to be concerned for those in our homes and minister to them. And one way to minister to them, especially right now, is to remind them of the gospel. And Christmas time really does give us a perfect opportunity to do just that. Um, another way to shepherd those in our homes um, is to give them an example of what it means to live out the implications of the commands of the gospel when you're sinned against, maybe when you're sinned against by them. And we also shepherd those in our homes when we help them think through what the effect of the gospel has on their lives. Then discipline three is shepherd others toward God in the gospel. So your neighbors, the ladies in your small group, family members that are outside of your home, maybe it's ladies in your discussion group this morning, whoever you come into contact with. Um, as a family in my home, we are reading this book this month. It's the, um, the book of the month. Uh, it's by J.C. Ryle. It's called The Coming of the King. So it's 25 really short devotions to be read each day to just kind of like reorient our thinking um, during this busy month. There's a lot going on. Um, one thing I really, really like about this book, it's not too late to start. They're really short. You could catch up if you wanted to um, or grab it for next year. Um, but the one thing that I really, really like about this book is that um, Ryle not only focuses on Jesus, who came in the likeness of men, the first advent, but he focuses on the second advent, the coming of Jesus the second time. Um, I'm going to read a little a bit that what J.C. says uh, in this book. Jesus Christ came the first time as a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He was born in the manger in Bethlehem in lowliness and humiliation. But he will come the second time as the king of all the earth with all royal majesty. So turn to Hebrews. We are going to look at uh, a passage here. We're going to go to Hebrews 10. This is um, a place where Smed was recently, a few Sundays ago, when he was talking about um, caring for one another in the body of Christ. So uh, Hebrews 10, we're going to start in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what day is drawing near? It's the second advent the advent of the King of Kings. So what are we supposed to be doing while we're waiting for our King to return? Hebrews 10, 22-25 tells us, hold fast to hope, love each other, practice the one another's, and encourage each other. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So here's my challenge for you this Christmas season and after. It doesn't have to end, you know, January 1st. But um, what are you doing to... Discipline one, shepherd your heart. Discipline two, care for those in your home. And discipline three, 
minister to those in the church and beyond. What are you doing to remind them and yourself of this second advent? Are you longing for Christ's return? Or are you kind of enamored by life here on earth? There's things you want to do and experience and see. Or are you daily praying, come Lord Jesus? Jesus is coming back. We just don't know when. Um, and if this is something that you're feeling like you would like to spend some time in God's word trying to help yourself think in that way, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are really helpful to, to orient our thinking in regards to the return of our king. Um, another thing that's going to be helpful for us is in the new year, on Sunday mornings, we're going to be going through the book of Revelation, which I think will be um, really helpful to keep our hearts having that eternal perspective. But for right now, think about what you're doing to be ready, to be watchful, and to be on guard for when our master returns. And I'm going to close by reading an excerpt from this book, and then Jacob will come up. He came the first time in weakness, a tender infant born of a poor woman in the manger in Bethlehem, unnoticed, unhonored, and scarcely known. He shall come the second time in royal dignity with the armies of heaven around him to be known, recognized, and feared by all the people of the earth. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son the first time for the humility that he showed in coming to earth, lived a, a perfect, holy, and sinless life, only to be sacrificed for sin he didn't commit, but our sin that we committed. God, I pray that this Christmas season that we would not be distracted by things around us, but that we would remember why you came to earth and that we would preach that gospel to ourselves and we would bring our hearts to submit under that truth. And God, I also pray that we would always keep an eternal perspective. Our life here on this earth is short and temporary. We are here solely to bring you glory and you are coming back soon. God, I pray that we would long for heaven we would live in, in the light of that eternal reality that we are spending eternity with you in heaven. God, I pray that that would change the way we think and the words that we say and, and the way we respond to people and our actions and our decisions, that you would change all of that in a way that brings you glory. In your name, amen. Is the next book still available? I think so. I think there's some out there. It's Melissa. <coughs> well, good morning. Uh, thank you for that reminder to love the Lord's appearing. Um, I'm just reminded when you say that of Second Timothy uh, three, verse seven and eight, where Paul says, "I have at the end of his life." of a life of doing after the Lord saved him, of really doing what we're going to be preaching today, guarding his heart and pursuing the Lord. And he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
And henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And what's encouraging is it isn't only to Paul, but he says, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So just reminded of that with what you were sharing, to look forward to the Lord's appearing. And it can be overwhelming to fight the fight every single day. And Hebrews 12, really all of Scripture says, get your eyes off the racetrack that you're running on, off of today, even while you're faithful in today, and have your eyes set firmly on Christ and his, his return, and his, uh, not only his return, but in his struggle against sin, he actually shed blood, and yours you haven't yet, so persevere with your eyes on Jesus, and so I pray that if today is overwhelming to you in what I share, um, discouraging to you, it makes you feel like you have too much to do, or how could I possibly guard my heart like this every day? that you would set your eyes on Jesus for the, uh, the strength to do so. So today we're going to be in Proverbs 4.23. I know many of you have heard this lesson before. Um, to some, it, it will be new. It has been a, a huge privilege of mine for, I think, really since the beginning of Wellspring to teach this every year, the beginning of Build to teach this. And, and I don't think anyone's benefited as much as me um, but I, I want to open in prayer just to, to not take that for granted that we would. We're going to have God's word open in front of us. And, uh, and I really want him active here in our hearts. So let's pray together. God, I, I beg that as we have your word open in front of us, as I speak and seek to expose the truth of your word, God, I beg that you would guard and guide my words. I beg that you would reveal yourself to us through your word and cause us to worship you. God, I pray that your spirit would be active here this morning. Holy Spirit, grant my heart a submissive posture before you. That I wouldn't teach this as an expert, but just as a fellow beggar helping other beggars find the bread. Holy Spirit, grant the heart of my hearers a submissive posture before you and transform us, sanctify us, maybe even save some this morning as your word is preached. And God, first and most, I pray that I would guard my heart more diligently as an effect of reminding myself of these things. And I do pray that that would be the result in the hearts of every woman here. In Jesus' name, amen. So open up your Bible or look down at your handouts to Proverbs 4.23. You can see there's three parts to the verse. Proverbs 4.23, there's three parts, a what, a how, and a why. And so identify those three parts with me. You can see it written in the various uh, versions, various English translations of the message there midway down the first page. The what of the command is keep your heart. Watch over your heart. Guard your heart. Then there's a description of how this is supposed to be accomplished. 
with all vigilance, above all else, with all diligence. And then a reason for this is given. Uh, the reason why Solomon encourages his son to guard his heart, watch over his heart, above all else, with all vigilance, is because it is from that heart that all the rest of life flows. He says, because from it flows the springs of life. It is the source of life, or as NIV translates it, and it's the name of, our, of this ministry, your heart is the wellspring of your life. So we're going to go through this. This outline of the verse is going to be the outline of our time this morning. But we're going to back in. We're going to start with the why and then move to the how and the what. Or that, the what and then the how. So the why is the reason why we have to guard our heart is that the heart is the well or the source from which all other behaviors spring. Have you ever sinned and thought, where did that come from? Feeling like what just came out of me, that, that, that wasn't me, was it? It feels like maybe a foreigner invaded you and almost you see yourself sinning and you're like, oh, that, that feels, that, that evil couldn't be coming from me. Um, it actually did, and it came out of the most deep you. It came from your heart. Or, Christian, when you do something good, when you serve your neighbor, you love your spouse, you love another even better than yourself, you endure in trial, you exercise selflessness or patience or self-control, where did that behavior come from? Likewise, that came from your heart. Sins or fruit of the Spirit, indeed everything you do, good or bad, every action, thought, deed, or word, you should think of as water that flowed from the wellspring. Right? Jesus uses the example of fruit on a tree. A, a, fruit, a tree can't produce a fruit other than the nature of the tree. Similarly, your life won't produce water other than the nature of the heart from which it flowed. And understanding this truth will help us get at the root of sins and prepare us for the great gospel solution to the heart of our problem and guide us towards walking in purity of life. So the inspired Solomon here gives a profound illustration for your life. It's simple, but it is profound. And we can think of everything that we think, say, do all of life as water that flows from a common source. So if that is true, there is no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. Or put another way, there is no part of your life that your heart doesn't affect. Or another implication of this, the character of your life reveals the nature of your heart. I'm going to say those three corollaries of this truth again. There's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. There's no part of your life that your heart does not affect. And the character of your life reveals the nature of your heart. So let's think a little deeper about this, this illustration. It seems like in Solomon's mind in the illustration is a, a city and a vital water source likely. 
pure water at the source can provide everyone in the city with pure water. But if the source of the water is contaminated, there's no hope for pure water. Right? And this is a problem because the Bible describes the heart, our life source, in some pretty unflattering terms. Uh, consider th- verses like Jeremiah 17, 9. We're down at the bottom of page 1. Describes your heart as deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Speaking of the natural human heart that you're born with. And then consider God's assessment of man's heart in Genesis 6, 5. And this assessment moved him to kill all of humanity, except for Noah and his family. God, seeing the heart perfectly, says, open your Bible to Genesis 6, 5. You you should see this for yourself there. Genesis 6, 5, way back at the beginning. Yahweh, who sees the heart perfectly, saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of his heart was only evil continually. And remember, the flood did not fix man's heart problem. That description of man's heart then as only evil continually is still just as true today of man's heart in the natural, unmixed, sinful condition. So if there is no part of your life that doesn't flow from this wellspring, and if you're born with a wellspring that is deceitful, desperately sick, and only evil continually... What would you expect to come from that heart? You can see it down at the bottom. This is just simple math, simple logic. If your heart's deceitful and the intention of your heart is only evil continually, and then the heart is the source of all of life, what do you think would naturally humanity would look like? Uh, Romans 3, 10 through 12, citing Psalm 14, 1 through 3, gives the logical consistent answer and exactly what we see in the world and exactly what you were like before God saved you and maybe if if God hasn't done the miraculous work that we're going to talk about exactly what your heart looks like now or what your life looks like now it says none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Humanity, we are a bunch of wicked people with unrighteous lives because we have wicked hearts. This is the description of unregenerate man living in an unmixed sinful condition. None of us are an exception to this. None of our kids are an exception to this. Nobody except for Jesus, whose father was God himself, gets to escape this. And what's so sweet is God does not leave the Christian in this situation. 
No religion can address this, right? You can't clean yourself up while you still have this heart. You might make it look better. You might hide it better. Um, but as long as the intentions of your heart are evil, even seemingly good works are done with selfish motives, not honoring the Lord, ultimately done for yourself and ultimately displeasing of God, even non-believers' best works deserve God's righteous wrath. And non-believers do not have very many best works. And you, nothing that you can do, not, no religion, no cleaning yourself up, no good works can change your heart. But God can and God does. Speaking of the new covenant with Israel, this, is, this verse is speaking to Israel. It's a promise that will come to all of Israel one day. But Jesus refers to the new covenant that we get to experience as well as Christian Gentiles. God says in Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, And a new heart, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. Do you see how God gets to the heart of the problem? Why, why did Israel fail? God gave them the law, but the law, good rules, and a good God set up against a dead heart, against a wicked heart, will still produce wickedness. The law merely convicts without heart change. But God gets to the heart of the problem and says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and carefully obey my rules. We recently went through, we, as a family, were reading one chapter a day through, through the Bible. We made it up through all the history books. And I just remember every day my kids saying, how could Israel be so stupid? Right? They have, they have God there in a pillar of fire, in a cloud. He's parting the water. He's giving them food every day. There's a reminder every morning of God's faithfulness, of his love, of his promise. And Israel grumbles. Why? Their hearts were unchanged. Not all of them. There was a remnant. There were some. But, but with the unchanged hearts that come to God, or with, with unchanged hearts that don't come to God with faith, reflecting God's work at the heart level, you could have all the evidence in the world. You could even have somebody rise from the dead, and you won't believe. You have the law of Moses. Somebody rise from the dead. You have manna every morning. God's word preached to you every Sunday. And without a new heart, you will only produce wickedness consistently. You will be lumped into that group that no one does good, no, not one. But God in the gospel changes you from the heart. He gives a heart transplant. He, he will deal with Israel's heart problem just as he will deal, just as he has dealt with our heart problem, Christian. He takes out the heart of stone, the hard heart that is unmoved before God's word, that's unmoved before God's grace, that looks at the cross and says foolishness, that looks at the cross and says stumbling block, and he puts in a new heart that looks at the cross and says power. 
a new heart that relates to God with submission, with faith, with love, and that can do good from the heart. And for me, this imagery of a heart transplant, I, I lock on to this. I, I have the privilege of doing cardiac anesthesia every day. I, I think it's about the best job ever. I take care of people, though, who have heart failure. We do measurements of their hearts, seeing the pressures rise and their lungs fill with fluid. As the body tries to pump, tries to fill the heart with blood, the heart normally stretches and pumps that blood out to the body, filling the organs with oxygen and nutrients. And when the human heart gets hard, that's what happens in a thing called diastolic heart failure. The heart gets hard, it doesn't fill. The blood gets pushed in and the pressures back up, your lungs fill with fluid. The blood doesn't move forward, so your kidneys die, your intestines die, your brain sort of, it doesn't atrophy, but it, it's not sharp. Um, you can't think well. Cognitive function deteriorates. Really, because the heart is failing, the whole body is filled with misery and death. And what's so crazy is when you see patients who are, I mean, you're just keeping them alive barely because uh, their heart's not dead, but it's close to it. And they get a heart transplant. And you come back, they, there's some of these patients I, I remember seeing where you're just like, you're a new person. Uh, they were, they could barely hold a conversation and they're witty and joking. You see their kidneys and they're, they're on the verge of needing dialysis every day, maybe, maybe needing it every once in a while because their kidneys can't work. They can't eat because they can't digest food. They can't walk because their muscles don't have blood flow. And they come back and they, they look like a different person because they had a heart transplant. Christian, we are more in need of a heart transplant than those people with a heart failure. Um, and God's work is even better than giving us somebody else's heart that will only last for a while. He takes out our old dead hearts and gives us a new heart, changes us from the heart. And then one day he will change our whole being. But I'm getting ahead of, our, of myself um, Christian, you had an old, dead heart of stone, and God gave you a new heart of flesh. You were born again, John 3.3. 3. You are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And God has given you, if you are a Christian, God has given you a new heart. God declared us righteous and changed us from the heart so that for the first time we will have the ability to obey God and love God from the heart. We still live in a mixed condition, right? <clears throat> we still have our sinful flesh and we're able to sin. And that can overwhelm us, right? Sometimes you think of the mixed condition and all you see is sin. I'm so overwhelmed with sin. I, I feel like I can't get rid of it. It's just there. But Christian, I want you to appreciate something this morning. That for the first time when God saved you, for the first time you are able not to sin. You're able to please God. You're able to shepherd your heart from sin and to God. Apart from this heart transplant, that's like going up to a grave and telling a dead person to be alive. God did that work. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive together with Christ. He took out your dead heart of stone and gave you a new heart of flesh. And now with this new heart, 
having been declared righteous in justification, you and I have been set on a trajectory to increasingly live out the righteousness that God declared, the righteousness that God saved us for, and the righteousness that God will ultimately complete in us. You used to be a slave of sin because you were sinful from the heart. We used to be obedient or disobedient because we had disobedient hearts. Open your Bibles to Romans 6.17. It's one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Romans 6.17 tells us what God has done, what God accomplished with this heart transplant. And Paul appropriately starts with the words, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. Underline that, circle it if you do that in your Bibles, or something big. You're obedient from the heart. You used to be slaves to sin because your heart was sinful. You're now obedient, not because God told you to, not because of fear of death, not because of religion. You're obedient from the heart because God gave you a new heart. You're obedient to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And you, having been set free from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. John Flavel, who's one of my favorite authors, Puritan guy, lived a long time ago, 1600s. He said it well. The heart of man is his worst part before salvation, and it's his best part after. It's not all that it will be. We're not all that we will be, but it's, it was your worst part. You used to be slaves to sin because your hearts were wicked. Your hearts were dead. Now you become obedient from the heart. So when you obey, where does that come from? Your heart, Christian. Who gets the glory for that? God. This is why in small groups, when we go through core questions and you're saying, what, what have you been learning from God's word and how is it changing your life? Don't hesitate to brag on God. Oh, but you better not be proud proud of this. Don't, don't look what I look what I accomplished. No, this is when you when something good is coming out of your heart, give God the glory because it, he's the only one who could have produced that. So your time in core questions, your time in small group of saying, "Oh, where how's God using me in evangelism? Why is God using you in evangelism? Well, because he changed you from the heart." How is God answering prayer? Well, you're praying because God changed you from the heart. How, why are you being affected by God's word? Because he changed you from the heart. And where are you seeing sin? Well, praise God that you saw it. You didn't used to care. And what does repentance need to look like? Well, this was never about you anyway. God, you're, you're a sinner saved by grace. So when you see sin, bring that to him and say, God, here's one more. Can you cleanse me of this too? we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness uh, this when you see basically guys everything that we do in the christian life flows from god god gets the glory and it's appropriate to say thanks be to god for many this is old news this theology of god changing you from the heart you know it you say, yep, this is the 157th time I've heard this. I got it. Don't 
ever let yourself be there. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Right? The same sun in the parable of the soils that caused the seed in the good soil to grow up to fruitfulness baked the clay of the hard soil. If your heart is sitting here and you're checking out and you don't say thanks be to God, repent of that and pursue thankfulness to the Lord right now. Every day when you open up God's word and you ask yourself, what do I learn today about God? Don't be content to just say, yep, I learned something and move on. What did I learn about God and worship him for it? So, Proverbs 4.23 told us that the heart is the wellspring of our lives. And that would be horrible, horrible news, hopeless news, if not for this good news of the gospel, this great news of the gospel, that when God saves us, he changes us from our very heart. And the change in us that the gospel brings is not superficial. If you're a Christian, you've been changed from the very core of who you are. You've been changed from the very wellspring of your life, your heart. So everything else that you learn today, do today, resolve to do today, it has to sit under that massive shadow of the gospel. Sit in the shadow of the cross where God gets the glory. It's all for him. This should not move you to religion where you try to better yourself through religious practice. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what every other hopeless religion does. Let me make the outside of the glass look look good, the pipes look good, while the water flowing through it or the water sitting in the glass is full of poison. God changes you from the inside out. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, this is next quote, middle of page two, says, till the spirit has regenerated the soul, all outward religion will be but a dead and pitiful thing. To make up a religion of doing or saying something that is good while the heart is void of the spirit of Christ and sanctifying grace is the hypocrite's religion. But thanks be to God, he has no interest in religion. Through the gospel, by Jesus' work at the cross, God gives us new hearts. But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. Christian, your heart is precious. Not only because it's the source from which all life flows, but also because it was made new in the gospel. Imagine a city. Imagine a city that once had a poisoned well that only made poison water. That city could not flourish. In fact, that city would be full of death. And then one day, a king provided clean water, a new wellspring, their old well was full of poison, and the new one, for the first time, had fresh water. Immediately, the city would be changed, right? It used to be full of death, weak, anemic, dying people from the poison of the water. And those same people would now have a taste of that which they never knew, pure water, life-giving water. And those people would know the importance of that wellspring, right? They would know the importance of the wellspring because they once knew the taste of tainted water. And now for the first time, they know the joys of pure water, the joys of purity. You know what those people would never think? 
they would never think, I wonder how much poison we could let back into this well and still be okay. That thought ought to never cross their mind, and that thought ought to never cross our mind. No, they would guard that well with all vigilance because they would know that their very lives depended on it. Christian, we are those people. Our hearts were unmixed in their sinfulness, and at salvation, for the first time, you could glorify God and not sin from the heart. So guard your heart. In light of that illustration with the city, consider the quote from Charles Spurgeon at the bottom of page 2. And as I read, look for the wellspring disciplines that Melissa went over, your heart, your home, your ministry. We didn't make this up at Grace Bible Church. It's all over the Bible. It's all over Christendom since. But it's, it's sweet to see wellspring disciplines from Charles Spurgeon. So let's, let's read this. The poison of the soul is only sin. And sin is like poison in many respects, because poison, wherever it enters, it stays not there, but it diffuses itself all over the body, and it doesn't stop till it is infected all. Such is the nature of sin. Enter where it will, it creeps from one member of the body to another, from body to the soul, till it has infected the whole man, and then from man to man till the whole family, and it stays not there, but runs like wildfire from family till family, till it has poisoned a whole town, and so a whole country and a whole kingdom. Woeful experience proves this true. If you dabble with the poison of sin, it will seek to destroy you. It won't stop there. It will seek to destroy your home. There will be consequences beyond you. And then your ministry will affect your small groups, your neighborhoods, this whole church. Jesus takes sin in the church very seriously. You should too. We help each other with sin in our lives, not because we're better than the other. Right? Who's well positioned to help the your brother or sister trapped in sin. You who are spiritual, the ones who are walking by the Spirit, the ones who are keeping a close watch on their heart are well positioned to help their sisters in Christ, their spouses, their kids. The one who sees clearly the log in her own eye is well positioned to help her brother or sister get the log out of her eye. And if you dabble with sin, you are well positioned to destroy your home, your small group, your church. And your heart will not survive. The one who endures to the end is the one who endures. You show that God gave you the new heart when you live out that heart. You can't say, God gave me a new heart, and then look at what comes out of your heart, and you see poison, you see sin. That might be evidence that your heart wasn't changed. So what do you do if you see that? You don't seek to make yourself better. You confess it. Turn to the Lord in faith. I said it before. 
<clears throat> if you confess your sins, he is faithful. He will forgive your sins and then cleanse you of unrighteousness. Do not, when you see sin, say, oh, I got to make that better. I got to make that better before I come back to church, before I come back to small group. I got to make sure that I get that sin under control. Confess it to the Lord. Confess it to your spouse. Confess it to your family. Confess it to those in your life. What poison are you dabbling with? And I don't ask that hypothetically. I want you to think specifically. Specifically to you. And probably in the most humiliating way possible. Not in the way that makes you look good. But in the way that reveals what maybe area of your heart you've let sin into. You don't want the gospel to touch. What poison are you dabbling with? Remember the city, they would never think how much poison can I let back into my life and into my well and still be okay. Remember purity, long for it. Don't stop at anything to guard the well. So for the sake of your life, your home, your church, guard your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the springs of life and it was made new in the gospel. You are no longer Christian, a slave to sin a slave to righteousness because God has changed you, made you obedient from the heart. So the truth that the heart is the wellspring of your life, it leads very naturally to Solomon's command, right? We just talked about the why. The heart is the wellspring. We could keep going longer about that, but it's hard to even talk about that without talking about the what. If the heart is your wellspring, what do you do? You guard it. And that's, that's where we're going next. Top of page three. Guard your heart. Keep your heart. This word in Proverbs 4.23 is not optional. It's not a suggestion. It is imperative. It is a command. It is something active. The word used here in Hebrew for guard, watch, keep, it's the same as is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe an alert sentry on a watchtower guarding valuable resources. A city dependent on a pure water source would obviously place guards like this around the spring, around the canals to protect the purity of the water. <clears throat> and a city at war would have guards always on watch knowing that very real threat could appear at any moment. We have a precious, newly pure water source with ever-present threats seeking to poison the well. How must we guard our hearts? How are we to guard? Well, so, so we know we must do it with all vigilance. We're going to get there. But how do we actually do it? So sin is the poison. So you must, we already got there. You keep sin. Don't tolerate sin in your life. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think likely on Sol Solomon here is, is probably speaking under the influence of his father, a man after God's own heart, David. And if we were to ask the question, as I was preparing this, I asked the question, well, how do we, 
do this? How do you actually follow this command? How, how do you guard your heart? What's so sweet is, is I think that uh, David sort of answers the question for us in Psalm 119, verse 9. Read with me. It's middle or top of, of page 3. It's David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, How can a young man, young woman, keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. So how did David guide his heart? How is David encouraging the God-fearing one to guard her heart? With God's word. David Specifically, David guarded his heart by seeking God through his word. And as you guard your heart, you will be protecting it from evil, right? You can't seek God with your whole heart and also seek things that are anti-God, right? Purity of heart is single nature of your heart. And if you are seeking God with your whole heart, there won't be room for seeking after anti-God things. You can't love both God and money. If you love the word, the world, you're not loving God. And if you're seeking God with your whole heart, you won't be pursuing sin. But fundamental, more fundamental, you might think, guard your heart. Okay, keep sin out. Yes, keep sin out. Sin is the poison. We already heard heard that keep sin out but more fundamental to guarding your heart isn't what you keep out but what you keep in i think this is jesus's point in the parable about the man who had the demons cast out and then he goes and gets a friend and comes back with seven and he's in the worst case than he was before you can't leave your room empty you can't oh gotta get sin out no, you get sin out and you seek God through his word with your whole heart. So as you guard your heart, you will be protecting it from evil, not wandering from his commandments. You will be careful who and what you allow close. But we see more important and more fundamental to the guarding of your heart isn't what you keep out, but what you keep in. Seek God with all your heart. As we guard the wellsprings of our hearts, we must be shepherding our hearts to the word of God to get the God of the word. Let's look at, I think, the New Testament ultimate illustration of David's heart purifying, God seeking. Uh, turn in your Bible to 1 John 3, 2 through 3. While you turn there, I just want to talk about, you guys are probably going to be starting a new Bible reading plan in January. Um, hopefully you're setting your heart before God's word every single day. What do you do? Like, what, what do you think of? What's your goal when you sit down to read God's word? I want, there could be lots of good goals there. But don't miss this one where you say, God, today... As I sit down and expose my heart to you, to your word, let me see you here. 
Where is God best revealed? In his word. I want to read, with that in mind, read this. I hope it blows you away. John writing in 1 John 3, verse 2. You might feel like this. You're like, okay, if I'm God's child, if God's given me a new heart, why, why is there still sin? Am I really God's child? This first part is so encouraging. He goes, beloved, we are God's children now. But what we will be, right, perfectly pure, it hasn't yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. This is why we long for his appearing. When he appears, we will be like him. Why? What's the means that God uses to accomplish glorification in us? We will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. One day, when we see God as he is, in a moment we will be made to look completely like him. This flesh that so easily entangles, which is so easily contaminated, will be removed and we will be pure, even as God himself is pure. We will be unmixed in our purity towards him. Right? You used to be unmixed in your sinfulness. God changed you from the heart. You're, we're in this mixed condition now. One day we'll be unmixed in our devotion and purity to the Lord, in our righteousness. And the means that God will use to accomplish that is seeing Jesus as he is. Interestingly, not surprisingly, God's means of sanctification are not dissimilar from his means of glorification. Ultimately, when we see him as he is, boom, twinkling of an eye, we are changed. How, how does God accomplish change now? How do we guard our hearts now? How are we sanctified now? How do we endure? You, you were there, Hebrews 12, with your eyes set on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That's how you endure. That's how you guard your heart, by seeking God with your whole heart. So Christian, just as David keeps his way pure by seeking God and his word, the New Testament Christian is to hope on God, fixing the gaze of his heart on him, her heart on him, as we look for him revealed in his word. So when you sit down with God's word open, don't get up until you can answer, what did I learn about you, God? And when you learn, that's not the end. You worship. You say, how must my life be affected by this? Where sin is revealed, repent. Where change is shown, worship him. And don't get up without being affected by God without worshiping him praising him today we set the gaze of our hearts on God by seeking him in his word one day it will be face to face can't wait for that day but while we wait we must be people of the word getting our hearts close to him setting the gaze of the, the eyes of our hearts on him. 
where we see him revealed most clearly in his word. So how must we do this? This can't just be one thing that we do among all the other busy things that we have in our life. Oh, what do I have to do today? Well, I have to read God's word. I have to make the kids food. I got to do the laundry. I got to go to work. I got, right? It's just the first thing on the list of to do's. That is not the way we view heart guarding. That cannot be the way you view heart guarding. You must set aside time separate from all the to do's to get yourself in God's word. But as you do all the other to do's, heart guarding must be the overarching theme over that. Above all else, we guard our heart to God um, through his word, even when you don't have the word open in front of you. So this is why uh, Solomon, this is why the verse says, you do this above all else with all vigilance, is because there cannot be for the Christian a higher task, a more important task, um, one that you give more attention to than the guarding of your heart. This isn't a suggestion. It isn't something that would be good to do in addition to all the other things that you do. It must be the most important thing in your life, what you do with more energy than you do with anything else in your life. And remember, this isn't just, oh, I need to give more attention to keeping sin out of my life. No, this is guarding your heart by pursuing God in all of life. I want to encourage you or, or make you think, if, if you are at war, battles, wars, are not typically lost in a decisive battle, or, or I guess when you're fighting a decisive battle, you know you're fighting it. That's not where you stop paying attention, right? It's, it's not in the middle of a war that you're defeated. It's, it's one tiny surrender at a time. You don't wake up one day and decide, I'm going to stop watching my heart, especially when you're in the biggest trial of your life, right? You must guard your heart. Don't waste your trials. That's when God accomplishes holiness. That's when he proves. That's why you count it all joy, because in those trials, God is testing your faith, and he is going to prove what he did. So you can count it all joy. But it's rarely in the biggest trials that the Christian fails and falls away. When you wander in the little things. It's a slow, incremental process. After small, incremental compromises, you become something that you never imagined you would become. So you must remain vigilant. Hold the line. Do not compromise in your heart guarding, even on things that may seem insignificant. Right? Solomon, when he's like, shoot, I'm going to be king. Well, he's like, oh, God, give me wisdom. I, I need you. I need you on this. Let me, let me build the temple that you want. Let me call the nation back to you. Let me continue even better than my father. God, give me wisdom. And then what? This is basically the story of 1 Kings. If you read 1 Kings chapter 1 through basically the death of Solomon, you see this process of a man who started well. And through slow, incremental compromises, ended up in a place he never thought he would be. 
And this is incredibly sobering because this is the one that God used to write this command that's the namesake of our ministry, Wellspring. Solomon knew the importance of guarding the Wellspring. He wrote the verse. And consider that with me as we read 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. You might want to turn there because this is just... And then today or sometime over the next few weeks, read, read 1 Kings, especially the, the chapters leading up to this, and look for the little compromises. Women, being convinced of the necessity of heart guarding is not sufficient. Agreeing with Solomon that this, with the importance of, of heart guarding, isn't sufficient. Being excited about heart guarding isn't sufficient. We actually have to do it. First Kings 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. Look at this. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father was. David sought God with his whole heart. Solomon, through a series of heart-poisoning compromises, had his heart turned away. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. And then consider the effects on Solomon's heart. We see it. His heart was turned away. What about his home and his ministry? Solomon's heart turned to false gods, but his children did not love God. Within a generation, the kingdom was ripped in two and inundated with idol worship. Finally, God's people were marched out of their promised land to exile in chains. Little compromises that Solomon was certain that he could handle poisons the well and all that flowed from it. Solomon knew Proverbs 4.23 better than we do. He wrote it. But guarding your heart is much more than knowing the command. You must actually do it. And yesterday's success at guarding your heart doesn't even guarantee tomorrow's, but it sure helps. Above all else, more than you pursue food each day, more than you seek to care for your home, to provide for your kids, More than you diligently care for your home, care for your ministry, more than anything else, guard your heart. God has given you a new heart. He's given you the Holy Spirit, and he commands you and enables you to guard your new heart. We must do this above all else. No days off. No higher priorities. This is a lifelong faithful process.
Christian, you are saved by God's grace, and you will only guard your heart by God's grace. So recognizing the importance of these tasks, right? the stakes are high, as you diligently depend on grace. Christian, you are saved only by hearing by faith. You will not be perfected by the flesh. Right? That's Galatians 3. That's a whole argument there. You don't seek to guard your heart through willpower. Oh, I need to make myself better. I need to earn God's favor. No, but God saved you by grace, through faith, and he had good works, good intentions, ultimately glorification in mind. So everything that you do with these questions that come must be done as an outflowing of faith under the shadow of grace. Your new heart was created by God. It will only be sustained by God. So on the back of page four at the top, I have some water purity check questions for you. The intent here is to help you see what the state of your heart is, right? How do you check to say, oh, how, how's the wellspring doing? If you have a city with pure water, they're aiming for pure water, what do they do? Well, they, they check the water. They look for contaminants. So too, you should look for what is flowing out of my heart. Is it consistent with the new heart that God's given me? Is it consistent with what God saved me for? Is it consistent with the holiness that God wills for you? Um, we check what comes out of the pipes in our home, right? To check the purity of the water. You don't feel real confident if you have a really nice, shiny faucet in your sink, but the water that comes out is brown. That's, that's what religious people do. That's what Jesus said the Pharisees did. They neglected the weightier things of the law, like love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, and they, they took care of the outside. It's easy to do that in the church. Clean yourself up, look good on Sunday, and when you come to Wellspring in that small group, and your life is an absolute mess. Don't despair if that's you. Repent. Confess it. Repent. And start guarding your heart. So these, uh, these questions are a, a means to that. They may lead to confession and repentance. They may lead to praising God for his work in your heart. I want you to consider these. Do you usually have a sense, or do you usually sense a presence or absence of affection for God? What does that reveal about the nature of your heart? Remember, when you had a wicked heart, no one seeks after God. The new heart, uh, you seek God with your whole heart. Do you have an appetite for God's word? I'd say if you don't, what tends to distract you or keep you from God, God's word? Are you daily shepherding your heart to God and his word? Why or why not? Do your daily routines, including entertainment choices, internet use, free time priorities, reflect that you're guarding your heart above all else? When you have five free minutes, what do you do? A really good heart check question is when you pull it, when you open your phone, your thumb is like a barometer on your heart. What app do you launch? And what do you do? What effect do TikTok reels, Facebook, whatever TikToks are called, Facebook reels, YouTube shorts or whatever, do those things tend to spur you towards heart guarding or something else? How do your prayers 
or lack thereof reflect the vigilance with which you guard your heart? What lures your heart away from God? Right? You can't love God in money. You can't love the world and God. There will be things when you think of the, the soils and the, the plant that sprouted up and there were things that choked that choked that faith what threatens to choke your faith how do you what would heart guarding look like if you recognize that and I want you to write at least three more questions these would be for you these would be the kinds of questions that don't make you look good the kinds of questions that are probably most revealing of when you're doing well, when you're doing poorly, when you're disciplined in your pursuit of God and when you're letting things slide. Um, for me, these questions, I tend to be disciplined in my pursuit of God and disciplined in other areas altogether. It's when I hit the snooze button and I don't work out like I was committed and when I tend to make bad choices in food, those aren't huge sins in and of themselves, but when I'm doing those things, I'm like, it usually is a indicative that I'm not being disciplined in all of life. There's some sin coming. Uh, that might seem trite. That might have no correlation with your life, but spend some time in prayer talking to your spouse, your roommate, your closest friends about what are some things in my life that tend to accompany sin that, that might reveal when I'm not doing a good job of shepherding my heart, might be like warning signs. Uh-oh, uh, there's some poison in the water before it gets too far. And, and Then go over these questions. Choose somebody in your life, somebody close. Doesn't Not everybody, but whether it's somebody in your Wellspring group, your small group, your spouse, roommate, somebody to go through this with and to say, can you help me? If you find yourself caught in sin, go to somebody whose life looks like what you want your life to look like and say, hey, I'm caught. Can you help restore me? And ladies, keep a close watch on your life here because you might need to be that woman for somebody. We don't run this race alone. I'm so grateful for the series that Smed is in. Um, you, it's not, you, we must walk by the Spirit. We must keep close watch on our own hearts. Because not only does faithlessness here negatively affect our heart, our home, our ministry, the whole church, but faithfulness here can have a similar positive influence, impact. Loving your neighbor as yourself, loving the women in this room, loving your kids, loving your spouse, has to include keeping a close watch on your heart, pursuing God in his word, fleeing from sin. It's not about making yourself look good. It's not about impressing somebody, looking impressive to, to church people, cleaning yourself up, having it all together on a Sunday or on a Wednesday morning. So I'm going to end with this quote from Paul David Tripp at the bottom of page four says, if, if my heart is the source of my sin problem, 
then lasting change must always travel through the pathway of my heart. Women, it's not enough to alter our behavior or change the circumstances, but Christ transforms people by radically changing their hearts. If the heart doesn't change, the person's word and behavior may change temporarily because of external pressure or incentive, like the pain of discipline, but when the pressure incentive is removed, the change will disappear. So if this lesson this morning, if these questions reveal, I'm not sure that I actually have been pursuing Christ with this changed heart. I, I might have actually been playing religion all this time. I've made it all the way to Wellspring, halfway through. And I realize that my heart's not changed. Don't leave here without talking to somebody, without even just talking to the Lord, falling on your knees and turning to him in repentance and faith, saying, God, I need this new heart. And if God has given you this new heart, resolve by grace through faith to keep it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. You would have been right and just to leave us in our rebellion to you and that we would only relate to you as judge and you would be glorified because we deserve it. You're so gracious that you would persevere, be patient, then condescend to become one of us and die in our place. Change us from the heart and then give us your Holy Spirit and then Give us eternity to be with you in your presence, marveling at your grace as your bride, who you purified, washed with your own blood. Take joy in us through what, who you have made us to be. This is amazing. Um, God, I just pray, I beg that the time that we have spent just skimming over the top of these themes of, of the gospel and its implications on our heart guarding, I, I pray that they would bear fruit and we would be different and affected from having been here this morning. May I guard my heart to you better, more consistently now. May that be the effect on every one of my hearers here this morning. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.